This morning we come to our next to last sermon in our series on the book of Malachi. So far in our study of this minor prophet, we have seen the importance of the covenant, the promise that God made with man, and the people of God's failure to keep the covenant. Today we are looking at Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12, where we see the faithfulness of God, and again, our unfaithfulness in keeping the covenant, for we perpetually fail to keep it. We also see in this passage that there's a specific symptom of the people of Israel's unfaithfulness, holding back their tithes and offerings to God. Now this passage is the usual proof text to show the need of tithing, but it's so much more than that. For this passage illuminates a deeper issue, a heart issue of not trusting in the faithful provision of God, even when things are not going our way. Please join me in the reading of God's Word from the screen. And while we normally read in the ESV, um, I think that this, the, this verse is better translated um, in the New King James Version. So that's what we're going to be reading this morning. So let us read now from the screen God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word from Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. This is the Word of the Lord. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in my way shall I return. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, I thank you for your word. Please open our hearts and open our minds as we hear your word proclaimed that we see your holiness and that we act according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as many of you know, I am a huge fan of the Baltimore Orioles. The great thing about being an Orioles fan is that most other fans of other teams, they never have a problem with us. We've never really been that good since really the 60s or the 70s, so not in my lifetime. And as fans, we're pretty usually humble. Yet, the faithful few, and I do mean few, of us, we did have something to cheer for for many years. Even people with just a passing knowledge of baseball probably have heard of the person of the player, Cal Ripken Jr., 
Growing up, he was one of my favorite players, probably my favorite player, and he was known as the Iron Man, for he rarely ever missed a game in his whole 20-year baseball career. At one point, for the first five years of his career, he played in every single inning of every single game. And then, as that continued, he proceeded to start every game, 2,632 of them, for 17 years in a row. He was the definition of faithful. Year in and year out, you knew he would be there, either starting at third base or shortstop. We similarly, we see in our passage today, God's faithfulness on an even greater scale. Greater than my baseball hero could ever be. For God is not hindered by broken, decaying bodies or our sinful nature. For he is God. God is faithful even though we as a humanity are faithless. And we demonstrate our unfaithfulness in our actions as stewards of the possessions that God gives to us. We would rather trust in our self-reliance instead of the provision of God. Trusting in ourselves rather than the sovereign God who knows us intimately and gives us what we need for faith and life in Him. This concept of God being faithful can be seen throughout Scripture, like in the refrain of Psalm 136, which is one of my favorite psalms. His steadfast love endures forever. It gets repeated over and over again with other phrases like His faithfulness to all generations. It is also strikingly similar and vibrant in verse 6 of our passage this morning, which says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Now, while on the surface, this does not use the word faithful, that is what God is in fact saying to his people. Because he is eternal, unchanging, that he has been forever faithful to his people, and he will be forever faithful to them. He also uses his name, which is very well known to the Jews, I am the Lord used his, this name when he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Horab in Exodus 3, saying, I am who I am. And through that conversation with Moses um, that God had with him, God revealed to Moses who he is, meaning his character as well as his power. This revelation that God had with Moses was communicated to the Jews throughout their history. Their knowledge of him their commands that God gave them continued to grow over time as God continued to progressively reveal Himself to them. Yet no matter how many times He revealed Himself by having a prophet speak to them or pronouncing blessings or punishment, God did not change. As it says in Hebrews 13.8, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For the Israelites, they saw his power firsthand. They saw the mighty waters of the Red Sea split into two. They saw manna bread from heaven drop down from the sky for them to eat for 40 years straight. They saw their enemies taken out in a way that no human way for the Israelites to gain victory happened, like the battle in Jericho. God showed them that he was the pillar 
of faithfulness in his will, in his character, and in his power. He also showed his faithfulness in keeping the covenant, which we have seen throughout the book of Malachi. And now we see again in the, first, uh, in the second half of verse 6. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Now this word covenant, I've said a lot in this sermon, and we've heard a lot about it during this sermon series. Yet, let's look at it again. This word covenant simply means a contract or a promise. And in this covenant, there are two parties. One which is more powerful, God, and one which is less, His people. God having all the power, and He's the one who pronounces blessings and curses upon His people if they obey the covenant or if they do not. And as we see again and again in the Old Testament, and specifically here in the book of Malachi, the people of God have again not kept the covenant. And God is demonstrating His faithfulness. In, to them by punishing them, but not destroying them. They are deserving of God's wrath, yet He does not annihilate them. He is faithful even though they are faithless. What we see in this is also extended into verse 7. The phrase, from the days of your fathers. It signifies that from their entire history, since the beginning of the covenant, it has been fraught with their unfaithfulness to God. Constant. Continuous. It's a striking contrast as a faithful God has been to them that they have been that unfaithful to Him. And now their entire part of the covenant, their entire history of unfaithfulness is now under review. Sort of like a year-end job evaluation. Probably a lot of you have gone through that. But instead of just looking at your actions, instead of just looking at your actions for that last year, what God is looking at, what he's reviewing, is all of the actions of every employee for as long as the company has existed. Looking at every single skeleton in the closet. It's being brought to light. Let me tell you, it's not a pretty picture. The result of this review is obvious from the start. They were guilty. They have gone away and not kept the law of God. They are not following His Word. And they are not worshiping God as He has commanded. Nor are they living according to His Word. In summary, they have rejected the blessings of the covenant. Peace, victory, faithfulness, closeness, provision, and so much more. And because of this rejection, they are now under the curses of the covenant. We, the church, are also the people of God. We are part of spiritual Israel. And as members of this covenant, we are also constantly rejecting how God commands us to live and to worship Him. As I brought up this morning during, um, during the New City Catechism. Now, the Puritan Matthew Henry, which some of you may have heard of, he aptly summarizes all of this saying in a very interesting way. We are like wicked servants, not only running away from our master, but running away with our master's goods. Running away from the master by quitting the work he has given to us. Forgoing how God commands us to worship him and worship him alone and not communicating with God as often as we should be. 
Like the people of God in Malachi's day, we have not been faithful to him. He shows faithfulness to us daily by providing for us air to breathe, food to sustain us, skills, abilities for us to make a living, families, and most importantly, salvation from sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A lot of these things we forget that God is the one who provided for us. Like the people in Malachi's day, we are egotistical. Our ego is so great, thinking that we know better than God. Let that sink in for a second. I often see on social media the acronym IMO or IMHO, meaning in my opinion or in my humble opinion, which is usually an attack on a base or foundational belief that this person has come to a new realization on, rejecting said foundational belief in favor of a new hip interpretation. Yet, in this idea, and it's not just in secular society, we see this in the church as well. God's ways and His laws have become an affront to us. We think that we can know better than God. How dare anyone tell us our faults? Especially call us to repentance. Man, our ego can be so arrogant. But it doesn't end there. Not only we and the people of Malachi, our people of God in Malachi, we're also self-righteous. Like the Pharisees of the New Testament. We think we can make ourselves righteous. That our actions make us great and right in the sight of God. Why would we need to repent to God of our sin against Him when we can forgive ourselves? When we can live as the best version of ourselves or to do the next best thing or the next right thing or add in any new age ideas which permeate our society in like Disney films? And then, why do we need to be covenant keepers or command obeyers? For we're good on our own. We are the providers of our health and well-being. Our self-righteousness, it keeps us safe so we can provide for ourselves. Man, our self-righteousness can be so self-centered and circular. What does all of this lead us to? Excuses. Excuses to what God has commanded us to do and to be. And as we see in the last part of verse 7, God said, return to me, and I will return to you. A loving and compassionate call to repentance. And how do the people of God respond? With a whiny, argumentative retort. In what way shall we return to you? The exact opposite of the answer that should have been given in the exact wrong way that they should have responded to God's grace. They responded aptly with selfish indignation when they should have been humble and repentant. Now, many of us think, this is not how I would have responded. I'm not like those people. I know better. We live in the modern day. Yeah, this is exactly how we respond as well. We have already started to act towards God um, because we, when, when God shows us our sin, we think of how could, how could, why would God even come at us? We're all right. 
God has shown his people in the past, the present, and the future that we must and have to repent. He also shows us even in greater things how to repent. Yet no matter the time or the place, our answer is always the same. In what way shall we return to you? For in our estimation, so many times when we sin, there is nothing wrong with our conduct. Nothing we need to repent of. We can excuse it away. It was how I was feeling bad that day. Or something bad happened to me. It's almost like a spiritual malaise. Not seeing the sin that is right in front of our face. Sort of like where you're in the dark and you don't realize you're about to walk straight into a wall. But out of love, God calls us to repent. And because of Jesus' life of righteousness, a life lived perfectly according to the law, the perfect, exact, sacrificial death needed to atone for sin, and being raised from the dead, defeating the punishment of the curse, death itself, we are forgiven of our sin if we repent and believe in Jesus as Lord because of the grace that God shows. God is faithful. And in His faithfulness to the covenant, He shows great mercy by offering that gracious invitation. Return to me and I will return to you. Or in other words, repent and resolve to new obedience to God. Like we see beautifully explained in the Westminster Short of Catechism, question 87. God's invitation is an offering to return in duty, in service, and allegiance to Him. Foregoing our self-righteousness, our ego, and our excuses, and returning to the blessings of the covenant. Which is what that second half of the phrase means. God will return the blessings which we have rejected. And he will return them in full if we repent and endeavor after new obedience. I encourage you this morning, if you are feeling God convict you of a certain sin, this morning, don't wait, don't hesitate. Come before him in prayer and repent. Knowing that if you know Jesus as your Savior, you will be forgiven. No and, no but, no or, you will be forgiven. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, come before Him confessing of your sin and ask Him to be Lord of your life. From this day forward, if you do that, you will have the righteousness that comes from God and not the self-righteousness of yourself. And greater yet, God will never abandon you. For as we've seen again and again in just the first two verses of this passage, God is faithful. And because of His faithfulness, we can and we must trust Him. Specifically, trusting in Him to provide. For that is one of the ways that God shows His faithfulness. In providing what we need for life and faith in Him. Trust can be tough though. Many of us, we've experienced relationships, difficult relationships, in which we have trusted someone and they have betrayed us or they have fallen short of expectations. We have put our fragile trust in their hands and they dropped it. They shattered it like a broken mirror. And from this, we feel like we can never trust again. Yet trusting in God is different than trusting in a person a person fails. 
A person changes. A person sins. God shows in verse 6 that He never changes. He never fails. He never sins. And His commitment to the covenant never wavers. He gives us the proof that we need to trust in Him when everything else can't be trusted. Now that may sound easy, but it's anything but. Trust in God does not happen overnight. We cling to our trusting ourselves. We cling to trusting our abilities like a child with his hand caught in the cookie jar. We cling to trust in his abilities and his knowledge rather than God's. This is at the core of our problem. Sin, our sin, has deceived us into not desiring the one true God. And this is the heart issue of trust. It affects all other parts of our lives. This is the root cause, which we see in verses 8 to 10 with the act of worship called tithing and giving of offerings. Now, tithing, it was established back in the days of Moses as giving the first 10% of the crop to God for his use. And because of the people's lack of trust in God, this unfaithfulness manifests itself in people not tithing and giving offerings to God. Scripture shows us that this specific instance that's being talked about in the book of Malachi is probably referring to um, a problem that was happening from back in the days of Ezra in the rebuilding of the temple when the people did not give their tithes and their offerings first. They held them back. And they didn't just stop doing that right after the building of the temple. No, they kept doing it. But in this way, this is not an isolated issue. And in doing so, they have been robbing God of what is due His name. Verses 8 and 9 specifically say this, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. How in the world can a person rob God? The simple answer is easily. Scripture tells us that God is the creator and the owner of everything. Everything is his to command and give as he pleases. Like in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the Gospels, when Jesus and his disciples commandeer a donkey and a colt to enter into the streets of Jerusalem. They don't ask the animal's owners for permission. And in doing so, Jesus is showing he is sovereign owner of everything. For he's the one who created the animals, and they are his to command. The owner, he was just a steward of God's creation. So if everything is God, then a person who is stealing or plundering is robbing God, and they are taking something that is not theirs to begin with. They have taken it. They have commandeered it for their personal use. And in these verses, the people of God are being rebuked for such a sin. This accusation is personal, and it's blunt. And according to the Hebrew text, it's an ongoing act. This is continual 
rather than a single solitary action. As I said, it was most likely back from the days of Ezra forward. Now, for a second, I just want to stop for a second and speak on tithing. To some, this almost may sound like an ancient pyramid scheme or even a weird show of God's power. But nothing could be further from the truth. God has showered his people with blessings, giving them the skills that they need, giving them the energy, the work, giving them the abilities, the good weather for crops. And in return, God commands his people to be good stewards of what he has given freely. All he commands in this specific instance is for people to follow his laws, one of which is to tithe or to give back 10% of the first fruits, which is what God has already given them as an act of their trusting in him. Yet, By not tithing, the people showed a visible symptom of their unfaithfulness, a true lack of trust in God's provision. And on top of this, it was something that they thought they could hide from God. Now, that sounds like a silly concept, but we see it again and again in Scripture. Even back in the Garden of Eden, like Adam and Eve, after they ate of the fruit, what did they do? They hid from God, or they tried to hide from God. We know how that worked out. But nothing can be hid from God. Instead, their sinfulness was on full display, trusting in themselves rather than God. And just like the people in Malachi's day, we are also called to be good stewards of what God has given us, giving back to Him what is already His, trusting that what He has provided is enough and that His blessings are that have been given to you is exactly what you need to do his will. And doing so is an act of worship. The Lord specifically teaches us to be good stewards in one of the parables of the New Testament, the parable of the tenants, in which there are three servants, um, with each one given a certain amount of money by their master. Two of them, they use the money, and they use it wisely. One hides it in the hole in the ground. In the end, Jesus explains that the two servants who used the money, they were the ones who were good stewards of their master's possessions. And then he proceeds to teach how those who are good stewards of God's blessings, God that he has given him, will be entrusted with more. The people of God in the past and the present have been showered with blessings, even though in our eyes it may only seem like a light mist. But no matter how much God may provide for you in terms of money, food, clothing, time, energy. He calls you to be good stewards of it. Giving freely, eagerly, and greatly because of what God has given to you already and to be used as He sees fit. Yet in our sinfulness, instead of being good stewards and following God's commands, we're like the people in our passage arrogant seeking to test god in verse 10 we see something that goes never well in scripture testing god but because of our sinful nature this happens far too often moreover we think that we can get away with it not obeying gods to the point of absurdity thinking that we know better than god himself how foolish are we how arrogant 
when our, our sin, our sin deludes our minds in this area that we think that we are smarter than him. We also see sinfulness manifested in our selfishness. This happens when we forget that God is the provider of all things. We dupe ourselves into thinking that, um, into thinking that we are the one who provide for all of our needs. That it's our blood, our sweat, our tears. This is what got us here today. Yet, it is our car in the parking lot, isn't it? It's our money in our bank account. It's our food on our table. Why would we even need to follow God's commands if we could provide for ourselves? The problem is, while it may be our blood, our sweat, our tears, we are not the primary mover in our provision. We are only the recipient. We are in the predicament that we are in today because we are totally depraved, unable to do anything good ourselves. It is only by God's grace that we are alive today. It is only by His love that He provides for us. For we are not deserving of His grace. Instead, we are deserving of His wrath. For we have broken God's laws, actively and passively. And because of our sin, the punishment of Genesis 3 is upon us all. And because of God's faithfulness to His grace, He does not annihilate us. So much of this is hard for us to comprehend. But praise be to God for his faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness. Praise be to the Father that he provided Jesus the Son the greatest provision of all. Praise be to the Son that he sent his Spirit to work in and through us. And praise be to the Spirit that he mortifies our sin, changing us from the inside out so that we desire the goodness of God's provision instead of the nothingness of our own. For it is like ashes in our mouths. Now we come to verse 11 and 12, where we see another reminder, almost a summary of what we are to do because of our unfaithfulness to God. I've already mentioned it this morning already. Trust in the Lord. Part of our punishment or curse that God has given to the people of Malachi is the destruction of their crops by some type of insect known as the destroyer. God reminds them that if you trust that he will, um, that he says this, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of our ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit in the field, and all the nations call you blessed, and all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The people in Malachi's day were called to trust in God's word. They would not need to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. And the same is true for the people of God today. Trust in the sovereignty of God that he will provide for all that you need for life in him. Give back a portion of what God has given to you for it is his already. Give freely and joyfully as 2 Corinthians commands us for this is what God desires of his people. Giving not out of, out of a mandatory obligation but rather out of a trusting of God, that he will take care of you and your family when you give him the first fruits of your labor. 
for the ministry of his church so that the gospel will go forth throughout the whole earth and the disciples will be raised. This is how God desires us to tithe and give offerings to him by being good stewards of what he has already given to us. Now, a misapplication of this passage, of this whole passage, would be as if we believe in God, trusting in him to provide, that we would be happy, happy, healthy, and wise. When we do so, we emphasize God's material blessings to such an extent that the whole gospel message, it's distorted, and faith in Christ is presented almost as a, like a business plan for economic success like the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel from people like Joel Olstein, But there is also an opposite danger of divorcing material prosperity entirely from God. We are to seek first the kingdom of God, the Father's kingdom, and His righteousness, as we see in Matthew 6, 33, so that we will know His provision For he is the one who gives us our daily bread, as we see in the Lord's Prayer. In this, God requires us to be stewards of all the resources he gives us. And acknowledge that everything we have, from the breath in our lungs, to the money in our pockets, to the bread on our plates, is given to us by him. And it can be taken away if we're not being good stewards of this blessing. This is why we see throughout Scripture that we are to thank God, that we are to obey God by worshiping Him according to His Word, by giving our tithes and offerings out of a desire for God's glory, for this is what is due His name, trusting Him by giving back a portion of what He has already given to us, out of a desire, not out of selfishness, but to see Him glorified and worshiping him according to his word. Praise be to God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, Father, please help us to obey your word. Help us to to mortify by your spirit, mortify our sin nature, Father, that we desire to live according to your word, rather than being arrogant and egotistical, that we humbly come before you in prayer in supplication, Father, in, in giving, in serving, and in so many other ways. Father, please change our hearts and minds so that we may be like Christ and desiring to follow you faithfully because you are faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.